I'd like to take a moment to thank my mom for listening to every episode. Now, my mom is the real reason you're listening to this show right now, but the sponsors have a little something to do with it as well. So I'd like to thank our sponsors too. Clio, TimeSolve, Alert Communications, and Scorpion. Now more than ever, an effective marketing strategy is one of the most important things your law firm can have, and Scorpion can help. With nearly 20 years of experience serving the legal industry, Scorpion has proven methods to help you get the high-value cases you deserve. Join thousands of attorneys across the country who have turned to Scorpion for effective marketing and technology solutions. For a better way to grow your practice, visit scorpionlegal.com. It's the Legal Toolkit with Jared Correa. With guest Sean Hill. A look back at the early days of the Philadelphia Flyers mascot Gritty and a demonstration by the Harlem Globetrotters. But first, your host, Jared Correa. The Legal Toolkit Podcast is right now. Yes, I'm your host, Jared Correa. Bob Eubanks was unavailable, so you're stuck with me. I'm the CEO of Red Cave Law Firm Consulting, a business management consulting service for attorneys. Find us online at www.redcavelegal.com. I'm the COO of Gideon Software, Inc. We build chatbots so law firms can convert more leads. You can find out more about Gideon at www.gideon.legal. Before we get to our interview today with Sean Hill, I wanted to discuss something that is vitally important to me, but probably inessential to your own life. Let's talk about Adam McKay's new show on HBO about the Showtime Lakers. Now, don't rush to your local streaming service. It's not out yet. But um, if you don't follow basketball already, this is going to be a series about the Lakers teams from the 1980s that won five championships. It's got some A-listers in the cast already. You're looking at John C. Riley, who's going to be playing Jerry Buss, the Lakers owner. And Adrian Brody is going to be Pat Riley, who was the coach of the team. He replaced Paul Westhead. It's just too bad that Pat Riley's a sniveling weasel and that Jerry Buss's stupid mustache is probably the most impressive thing about him. I'm sorry. It's true. I fucking hate the Lakers. I still have an I Hate LA t-shirt from the 1984 playoffs hanging around here somewhere. And if you're from the LA area, I apologize that you have to follow such a shitbag team. What may surprise you is that as a middle-aged white man from Boston, I really love the Boston Celtics. Particularly... Larry Bird. In fact, he's my favorite all-time basketball player. Now, don't get it twisted. I'm not saying that Larry Bird is the best basketball player ever. Take a look at Bill Russell's track record sometime. He makes Tom Brady look like a chump. You could argue that Magic Johnson was a better player in their shared era of the 80s, and Michael Jordan had more titles and was probably more skilled. Now, what I'm saying is that Larry Bird is my personal favorite basketball player. I love the work ethic He's out there shooting hoops dramatically in the Indiana dusk. I love the hard luck story. His dad committed suicide when he was really young and his family was very poor. I love that he didn't care at all about the press or recognition. When he left Indiana University on a scholarship, he became a garbage man before he went back to college to play for Indiana State. I just love everything about Larry Bird. And as they deliver this monologue, I'm looking at a signed Larry Bird Indiana State jersey that hangs in my office. So this is the real deal. So I thought this might be a perfect opportunity to tell some Larry Bird stories because it's my podcast and not yours. And that's what I'm going to do. As it turns out, 
Larry Bird's greatest game may have happened in college. In the 1979 Final Four, in the semifinal game against DePaul University, where he was triple teamed the entire time, Larry scored 35 points, 16 rebounds, and 9 assists, almost triple doubling, while shooting, by the way, over 80% from the field. And the Indiana State Sycamores, yes, that was their team name. They've never done anything since. I can't imagine why you would know that. Uh, They won by two. And that Indiana State team had one other player that made the NBA, and he was a journeyman for five years. That team was bum sauce outside of Larry Bird. He carried them all season. And they were undefeated up into the final game of the NCAA tournament when they lost to Magic Johnson in Michigan State. But in the process... Johnson and Bird saved college basketball and then just went ahead and saved the NBA, too, for good measure. In 1985, against the Atlanta Hawks, Larry Bird scored a Celtics record 60 points and was lighting up the Hawks so badly that the end of the Hawks bench started cheering for him. They were fined. In a 1985 game against the Portland Trailblazers, Larry loved to torture the Blazers, by the way. He put up a triple-double with his left hand. He was right-handed. When, after the game, he was asked about it, he said that he was saving his right hand for the Lakers. During the 1986 All-Star Game, the league held its inaugural three-point contest. Larry comes into the locker room and asks everybody who's going to be finishing second. In a final round, he had already won before he got halfway around the court and raised one crooked finger in the air after nailing his last shot. In the 1988 event, by the way, he won the first three three three-point contests at the All-Star Game. He didn't even bother to take off his warm-up jacket. Larry Bird would also tell other teams the play that was coming, daring them to stop him. On a West Coast trip in 1986, Bird told the entire Dallas Mavericks bench that after the timeout, Danny Ainge was going to inbound the pass to Dennis Johnson, who would then hit Bird in the corner, where he would step back and take a three. And he went over to the Dallas bench and he said, you got that? I'm going to stand right here. I'm not going to move. They'll pass me the ball. And the next sound you'll hear will be the ball hitting the bottom of the net. And that's exactly what happened. Larry Bird hits the shot, winks at the Mavericks bench before heading back down to the other end of the court. After the Pacers, Chuck Person suggested he was going bird hunting for a game against the Celtics the day after Christmas. And the Pacers subsequently lost by 20 because Chuck Person was an asshole. Bird had a holiday greeting ready. Merry fucking Christmas. When he was on the Dream Team in 1992, when he could hardly even play because his back was so bad, they were signing balls for autographs in a hotel room in Barcelona. And the equipment manager came in and rolled the balls over to Larry, and he said, uh, what's the quickest anybody's done this? And the trainer said, oh, you know, eight minutes to 20 minutes. And then Bird said, I'm going to be the fastest. So he signs the balls, throws the last one over, and he said, how long did it take? And the guy said, four and a half minutes. Now, do yourself a favor this weekend. Watch the documentary, Larry Bird, A Basketball Legend. It was from 1991. It's narrated by Daniel Stern, who played Marv in Home Alone. And the whole thing's available on YouTube for free. You won't be sorry. Well, you won't be as sorry as Xavier McDaniel. Stay tuned, because we're about to bring out our next guest on the sports show. It's Sean Hill from Nice Job, who was also on the marketing team when the Philadelphia Flyers hockey team launched their mascot, Gritty whose initial reviews were poor to middling. That's next. But first, let's take a moment to listen to the Clio Legal Trends Report Minute. Did you know that in 2020, over 50% of legal professionals worried about the success of their law firm? 
To think that over half of the legal service industry has experienced such duress should be raising alarms. I'm Joshua Lennon, lawyer in residence at Clio. The good news is that industry data shows law firms are as busy as ever with new casework. The bad news for most lawyers is that billable earnings continue to be down by 6 to 8%. Clio's Legal Trends Report, based on data from tens of thousands of legal professionals, shows some lawyers have managed to earn $37,000 more than others. What are they doing differently? They've been using three key technologies, online payments, client portals, and client intake solutions. To learn more about these technologies and much more for free, download Clio's Legal Trends Report at clio.com forward slash trends. That's Clio spelled C-L-I-O. Okay, it's about time to get to the extra spread on our animal-style burger from In-N-Out. Let's interview our guest. My guest today is Sean Hill, who's the Community Marketing Director at Nice Job, a review management platform. Nice Job's located in Vancouver, which is not a surprise because that's the most Canadian-sounding company name you could ever want. Nice job, eh? And Sean, welcome. How are you? I, I am great. Uh, I will say that the company is Canadian, but I am American. So if you're looking for me to say words like process, uh, it's not going to happen in this one. Well, just one. We'll just get one process out of you. It's one of All right. You're officially Canadian now. So review management software. Let's talk about that. That is something that I think is significantly underutilized in the legal industry. But for folks who are listening, I just want to make sure they understand what that is in the first place. So could you give us like a brief rundown on what review management software is and does? Yeah, so first thing I'll say that review management software is a key component of NiceJob, which we are actually now reputation marketing software. And I'll go over the key differential, but yes, for review management, uh, you know, what it comes down to is collecting reviews, getting feedback for your business, you know, your your firm, your entity, what, whatever you want to say, uh, and gathering those reviews. And what NiceJob does, it's automated software that helps eliminate a lot of the barriers. So smart features like making sure that someone has a Gmail or a Google account before asking them to leave a review on Google My Business, you know, making sure they have a Facebook account. Things that when they're at the moment of peak happiness or they're ready to give you that honest, genuine review, that you can make it as quickly as possible. And the reputation marketing element comes in by giving you tools to share those on your social media channels, um, you know, get deeper insights, uh, you know, find out what exactly your reviews are saying about you. If you're doing it through team members, you know, other people within your firm, you know, who is actually collecting these reviews and getting this great feedback. So It takes it well beyond, but reputation management or reputation collection, review collection, it just comes down to getting the reputation you deserve. And we like to say we help great companies get the reputation they deserve because if you're a bad company, NiceJob can make it pretty easy for you to uh, get reviews as well. So we want to make sure that you're great first. Right. Now, that's a good way to look at it. And I found that like for law firms in particular, like the two things they have a really tough time with is one, setting up a review process. So I think if you're not automating this in some way, it's a total nightmare. And then the other thing is like law firms are very bad at checking the reviews they have online. Like I can't tell you how many consulting clients I have who are law firms. And I'm like, oh, you know, you have like five reviews online and four of them are one star. They're like, no, that's news to me. So I think a couple items there that you talked about, one is understanding what your review position looks like online in the first place, and then creating a process that probably doesn't exist from scratch. Yeah, and we, you know, at Nice Job have an integration with software, say like Clio, where yeah. it's fully automated. So you're working within Clio, and it will trigger, you know, Nice Job's review campaign. 
And then the dashboard with a nice job itself, if someone leaves a review, they don't go through a nice job link, they don't respond to the, the text or email that we kind of sent out, they just go leave it organically on their own. Nice job pulls that in and allows you to use that for marketing assets and like you said, kind of monitor it along. So you have, you know, your your review collection, your reputation monitoring, and then ultimately the marketing element. But the biggest thing that we hear when people are like, well, I don't want to beg for reviews, you know, like I feel like I want to like earn it. <laughs> And right. the counter argument that, or the, the response to that is like, well, this is the process to leave it. Again, like you're still doing the work. If you yeah. want to get really good detailed reviews is you kind of need to prepare the client throughout the process to set them up to let them know. And often I would say, especially in the legal community, is that we did hear a bit of, you know, all right, is it down to case one, case loss? You know, we talk when we talk about home service professionals, which is a big part of our market, it's about like setting the right expectations. But again, you can get a review on any part of the process. So you could ask for a review. And if you've been telling them like, hey, we're going to try our best on this case. We want to get this settled for you. We want to get you the best result possible. But what we really want you is to feel comfortable throughout the whole process that we're listening, we're communicating. You plant that seed like, hey, this is the type of feedback I want to hear. And it may not go their way in the decision. But if the rest of that, you met that expectation, you'd be surprised how many people leave a five-star review saying, you know what? I called them. They always answered the phone when I called and they always did that. Like they'll spout off. They'll explain what part was five stars, even if, you know, in the end there might be something that they, they wish one a little bit better. So it's completely possible to build a reputation, even in a complicated business. I know plenty of lawyers who have lost cases and got positive reviews. I think most lawyers would agree with you that it's won or lost, but that's not the case in practice. I mean, when I was practicing, I had a bunch of times where I lost a case and I remember I was doing social security disability for a while and I had this lady and like she lost a case and it was not going to be great for her and her family. And they made cookies for me and brought them to the office like a week later. And I was like, wait, you don't understand. We didn't win. And they're like, oh, we know. We know that you worked really hard on that. And I think a lot of lawyers don't see value in that. They just see value in did I have a positive result or not. But there's much more to it in terms of your brand. That's so what I'm saying. It's a self-limiting behavior. So, you know, yeah. it's not you begging for a review and it's not, you know, making sure uh, that you're always kind of buttering him up enough. Like it's getting honest feedback, even negative reviews. You said the example of you have five reviews and four are negative, you know, within nice job, you have the ability to reply to, you know, something like a Google review right in the app. So you don't have to go, you know, a billion places to leave a review is sometimes those bad reviews. It now is uh, putting the microphone in front of you. How do you respond to those sort of things? You know, what can you kind of explain? And sometimes it's putting it out there, but, you know, obviously you're not sharing exact information about the case or things like right. that, but saying like, you know, like, like, you know, we, we're sorry that you kind of feel this way. You know, we would love to hear any feedback regarding, you know, A, B, and C, um, or even just saying, you know, like, you know what, like, thank you for this. Like, we're always constantly striving to be better. But also if you're asking everybody, I doubt that firm just had five clients. But if you're asking right. everybody, right. chances are you're still going to get those four one stars. They might still sneak through. But now when it's 300, um, Jared, I'm sure you're familiar with like the uncanny valley when it comes to CGI. When things start looking at too real, people don't, they don't like it makes them uncomfortable. Well, it's the same thing. Right. If you have only five reviews, whether they're five, five stars or, you know, the one five star, the one four star is people think it's such a small segment. They don't kind of believe it. And if you have a hundred reviews and they're all five star and you're a 5.0, the data actually kind of shows that that becomes a little bit unbelievable as well. The ideal number is to constantly, every time they check back, to have that number go up. Because if you're a 5.0 and I check and you have 120 reviews, and I go back the next day and you have 123 reviews and you're still at a 5.0, or even if one of those bound goes in, 
that shows you're relevant for the search engine optimization, all that element of it. But from the human element, the social proof element, it shows that, yeah, people really are talking about you and they really do like what you're doing. Yeah. I like this other notion that you brought up, which is like looking at specific aspects of a case, right? So I think we talked a little bit about this when I was on your podcast, which is like, if you're an attorney, there are certain expectations that consumers going to have. Maybe that you're expensive, maybe that you're difficult to work with, maybe you don't communicate with them. So you can angle a review to say, hey, I thought it was going to be really expensive to work with an attorney. It wasn't as much as I thought. I thought the attorney was never going to get back to me. They were really responsive. That type of thing works across industries probably, right? Oh, for certain. You know, we talk about preparing someone to leave a five-star review. And, you know, part of it, as I mentioned, is the easy process through Nice Job. And the way Nice Job works just functionally is it starts with a text message that's instantly set as soon as you ask for a review. Then it'll follow up with up to three emails if necessary. So once someone leaves a review, it takes them out of that campaign. They don't get any follow-ups. But if they need to. And we change the tone of each of those messages. So the first one's the moment of, uh, you know, peak excitement. Hey, you know, our business is done. This is great. Like, I hope you would leave us a review. And the second one is like, hey, hope, you know, you're still feeling good about what we did. The third one is we know life gets in the way. And the fourth one is like this, this follow-up, right? This personal message, we call it. That really says like, hey, you know, we always strive to go forward, you know, the, the exact tone in there. And what we found is that what we see in the first review is always the overexcited, oh my God. And sometimes we see like the like, excellent, love it, you know, with nine exclamation points. <laughs> but around the third and the fourth, sometimes we see a little bit more detail in the review. And we also know other people that have gone that say like, hey, from second one, like I mentioned earlier, we want you to feel comfortable. We want you to feel that we are attentive to your needs. You know, it's almost like setting it up, going back to the wins and losses thing is tell them what's important to you. And that's what they'll respond with. But then it also gives you a good idea that if you're talking about, you know, uh, promptness, 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 and then you ask for a review and they don't talk about that at all, maybe that's not important to your clients. You know, now it's not saying like, all right, well, now it can be late, but it's saying like, okay, well, maybe your marketing or maybe your initial pitch, maybe your consultations need to focus a little bit more on some of these other elements. But throughout the stage, there's plenty of opportunity to say, hey, we want to know how we're doing as a whole, not just a, a win or loss. But tell them what's important to you, listen to sort of feedback, and you'll be able to kind of guide them along. And you'll be surprised of how, you know, just five stars with no detail does help you. But four stars with a ton of detail might actually be a bit more helpful. So mm. let them know what's important to you, and, and they'll tell you back. And the fact that you're making the process easy, just naturally will give them more time to write more. Yeah. Now, I like this idea of taking data and information you gain from reviews and actually using it to influence your business practices. Like, I'm a big believer in data analytics for law firms. They don't use data enough to make decisions. But this is just one of those buckets where you can gather useful data and run your law firm more effectively than you have before. And I probably shouldn't say this live on this podcast, but you can get away with a lot, even if you're a bad attorney, if people like you. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's it, that's a big part of it. You know, people will sign on to do business in any sort of entity for a variety of different reasons. And we always talk about with social proof, the psychology behind it is if you're hearing a lot about a law firm, a business, you know, what have you, if you're hearing a lot about something, the top two reactions are, okay, they seem to be the best. I'm going to go with them. The other one is the oppositional defiant thing, which is like, all right, I'm not, everybody uses that person or whatever. <laughs> and so how, right, how do you right. marry that? Or where you marry that is that people want to always feel safe and smart in their decision. And so they want to make the decision knowing that at the very least they can go, well, they had good reviews, you know, like they, I feel I, I, I booked them because that's why, but they also want to go of, you know what? I need to find out for myself. 
But ultimately, when you talk about, you know, other people within your competitive market, you know, as competitive in some markets can be, mm-hmm. it's about having the true, honest look about who you are. But people really don't want to hear from you. It's a very strange sort of deal. You know, like people are 12 times, there's a reason that 12 times more likely to believe a review than written copy because of this one acknowledgement that there's copywriters out there. But secondly, because that's a real person, a real situation and, right. and real elements in there, not something that's, that's you know, handpicked. Now with nice job, you get the ability to share these reviews out and go out. So you can find these really Gemma reviews. You know, we found if you put a review in an ad, you could see as high as like a 300% increase in click-through rate because it's real words. If it's, you know, the rest of it's crafted correctly. Yeah. But that all comes down to is that people want to see that sort of thing. And if you're not in a position where you're constantly getting it and and showing the full picture and then being able to make adjustments. So, hey, people are talking about this, but I want them to talk about that. Or they're not talking about this. And, you know, I, I want to up that game. Is it allows you, like I said, to maybe hide your deficiencies and really accentuate your positives. And like I said, you can, in the end, I think you do have to have a core of being great. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to be the best one to ever to do it. Mm-hmm. You just have to be client-focused, customer-focused. You have to really kind of care. You have to really kind of be in there. If, if you're scheming and greasy, that might catch up to you. <laughs> However, if you feel like someone that's scheming not a and great, greasy is Not a great your, word choice for a review, right? If somebody's like, this guy's scheming and greasy, people yeah, are probably but, out. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. So that, that's bad for you. But what I'm saying is that if you have someone that you know is that in your market and you can't figure out why you're not yeah. you know, booking, getting more than they are, yeah. it's probably because they have ruined the reputation for your entire market. So you need to go out there and not only get the reputation you deserve, but perhaps spread that out and say, hey, there are good lawyers in this town and there are, you know, good people that are looking out for what you what you need. I get, I get a common question from lawyers all the time. And that is lawyers are obsessed with bad reviews. And I think a lot of business owners are, right? You get 705 star reviews, you want 701. So- what do you do with like a really bad review? How do you respond? Should you respond? I always get this question. So somebody like you who deals with reviews all the time, what tactics do you see that are viable? So two main things. One is learn from it, right? The way to stop a bad review is to find out why it's a bad review. And and it might doesn't need to be a drastic change. I, I say that bad reviews 99% of the time come from failure to meet some sort of expectation. Now, that expectation could be unrealistic. Like, I thought this lawyer was going to come in and and buy me a suit and win me a million dollars and do all these other things. Like, and that didn't happen one star. So when you're replying to a review is you never want to really get defensive or, you know, kind of he said, she said that sort of back and forth. What you want to do is explain your process, explain your methods, and explain what you would do at a very high level if they gave you a second chance. Because people want to see the fact that, A, maybe perhaps during the whole process, that they can challenge what you were saying. You know, no one wants to hear like, hi, I'm the expert in this matter and I will hear nothing else. They want to connect with people that think they might be wrong. So you should reply to every review, including the good ones keeps a personal touch, shows that you're engaged, shows that it's not just something you're putting out there for marketing elements, it's an actual feedback channel. On the bad reviews, you want to respond. You don't want to get combative. You want to try to take it offline, as we generally sort of say. But you want to show everyone that's looking for a future review, that old uh, tactic of, well, I look at the top three good reviews and the top three bad reviews. So people are going to see it. But guess what? They also understand 
that people have bad days. They also think about the fact that they themselves stormed out of something and was like, I'm going to write a negative review. Like they know what that feels like. And they understand that if you go and say, Hey, I'm not saying we, we did mess up or we didn't mess up. What I'm saying is we fail to make expectations. We want to improve and make sure the expectations are always set. So you understand what we can provide because we strive to do this. And if you don't think that we did, like that does fall on us. So it's not saying you're admitting fault, not saying you're, you're admitting anything like that. It's purely just saying, yeah, we are open to hearing the negativity because what will happen is when people see that on negative reviews is during the process, they will bring it up. They won't let it fester and grow in their head and they'll be so angry at the end of it that they'll leave a one-star review. So if you're letting them come through and you're responding to them, uh, you'll be surprised of how quickly they become a thing of the past. Sean, awesome. Thank you. That'll do it for our first segment. So thanks so much. That's Sean Hill from Nice Job. He'll be back in a moment because we'll take one final sponsor break so that you can hear more about what our sponsors can do for your law practice. Then stay tuned for the Rump Roast. It's even more supple than the Roast Beast. Imagine billing day being the happiest day of the month instead of the day you dread. Nobody went to law school because they love drafting invoices for clients and chasing overdue bills. At TimeSolve, our attorneys have the tools to achieve a 97% collection rate. That means more revenue for the same work and turning billing day into happy day. Learn more about how to get to your time and billing happy place at timesolve.com. As the largest legal-only call center in the U.S., Alert Communications helps law firms and legal marketing agencies with new client intake. Alert captures and responds to all leads 24-7, 365 as an extension of your firm in both Spanish and English. Alert uses proven intake methods, customizing responses as needed, which earns the trust of clients and improves client retention. To find out how Alert can help your law office, call 866-827-5568 or visit alertcommunications.com slash LTN. Welcome back, everybody. Here we are at the rear end of the legal toolkit. I like to call it the rump roast. It's a grab bag of short form topics of my choosing. Today, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia Flyers mascot, Gritty. Philadelphia Flyers are a hockey team, in case you weren't aware. Sean, you know a little something about Gritty, right? Uh, yes, I know a lot about Gritty, uh, more than anyone should know, and some would say perhaps only slightly less than Gritty himself. <laughs> All right, I want to get to the story of Gritty here, but like, let me start with the response. So as you know, and as we talked about, when Gritty came out, some people were decidedly not into it. Now, I want to tell people this will have a happy ending, but let me read to you some of the original impressions that people tweeted about Gritty. Some of the stuff that came out about Gritty was, like, fairly nasty to start with. So I just wanted to read you some of those just to get your sense of, like, how you were feeling when this came out and then how things turned around almost instantly. So when the mascot was introduced, the Pittsburgh Penguins account tweeted, LOL, okay, which is, that's rough, man. Like, hmm? you got the, the team in the same state. And then you guys responded back. Do you remember what your response was? Uh, sleep with one eye open, bird. <laughs> That's correct. That was great. All right, so I got two um, two tweets about Gritty that I thought were just, like, really wild. So one guy writes, Gritty is part bear, part orangutan, part piss-soaked mop, part hill cannibal, part angel from the book of Ezekiel, part gas station attendant high on spray paint, part yeti, part leviathan, part behemoth, part the xenomorph baby from Alien Resurrection— 
and part of you too. So it ends on a nice, nice note there, but this guy's pulling in a lot of feels for Gritty. <laughs> uh, yeah, and uh, you know, we actually went on Mari and it was determined that that wasn't a lie. So that's, uh, that's good. It was an accu- accurate tweet on that part. <laughs> and then some other woman wrote, fire everyone in your marketing team and also anyone that thought Gritty was a good idea. This in no way makes anyone fear our team. This will give adults and children horrific night terrors. Thanks for making the Philadelphia Flyers the laughing stock of the NHL. Also, like, really rough take there. And I think a little over the top as well. All those tweets were expected. It's exactly kind of Yeah, I was going to ask. Needed. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. And so that, that Penguins one you bring up, though, that's that's the hinge point. But uh, yeah, but what, what exactly would you like to know about the response? Well, here's the thing that I find really interesting. Like, mascot comes out, right? some really nasty responses out there on social media. A lot of people are probably thinking like, what did we do? And then it almost instantaneously turns around. So can you talk about how that happened? Yeah, so I, I, I will lead into that. I, I definitely will answer that question because it's a very interesting thing about the origin of Gritty. Yes. There is, uh, I made a, a joke about Mari earlier, but to really go with the Gritty story, to use that Mari perspective as the, the father, not the father episodes is the only part where the analogy falls through is a lot of people who you consider the father, right? Yes. But what it is that everyone in there that was involved in the creation has a part of their story, as you see in a Mari episode, where they're claiming not to be the father. Or some people are like, <laughs> I want to be the father. And other people are like, I may be the father. I may not be proud of it. But if it comes out, Mari, that I'm the father, then I'll be involved in this kid's life. Right. So I can tell you, I was one of those people that wanted to be the father, wanted to be a part of it. And the night before we debuted Gritty, we took him to uh, the Please Touch Museum in Philadelphia. We had a bunch of kids out there ready to introduce mascot. The night before, it was myself, maybe two other people that were like, this is going to work. It's going to be like, we, we, we all knew it was going to be bad at first, but then we're going to recover. Oh, were, were other people go. like backing yeah. out originally? And you were like, no, oh, this is going to be fine. I can tell you right now is that there were some people that were begrudgingly part of this project <laughs> that were, they were like, they, they thought what that, that last tweet you read is they were like, people are going to hate us. They're going to hate what they did. <laughs> right, they're, they're, right. It's going to be a failure. We're going to see this year after year on list of worst ideas. Those same people that were trying to distance themselves away from this mm-hmm. have recently appeared in magazine articles about how they're a part of the creator. Every single thing like that is you, it was so quickly how much it changed. And I was told and a, not a name drop because I don't think everyone knows him, but it was Sean Tilger who was you know one of the higher ups really part of this, and he mm-hmm. pulled me aside at one point and said to me and, and another person, he's like, "Whatever happens here, it's up to you guys to keep it going. Like you are going to have to keep executing this. So if everyone in the world hates it and it never turns around and never gets great, just so you know, we got forty four more games on the schedule and you got to figure out what we're doing." <laughs> And you're like, so, great. <laughs> yeah, but like, but because of that, that's why I kind of had faith in it. So what we knew was going to happen is, and to set a little bit more perspective for those that are not mm-hmm. familiar with sports, yes. is in Philadelphia is also the Philly Fanatic, the mascot of the Philadelphia Phillies. The original performer, and not usually don't talk about mascot performers, but the original performer is a man named Dave Raymond. Dave Raymond was part of consulting with Gritty and that creation, things like that. So you already had the expert. But one of the key things that came out is, just like actors, you never want to work with like Santa Claus or puppies because you'll never get top billing with those two. <laughs> it was the same sort of thing of everyone's going to compare it to the Philly Fanatic. So if we try to put yeah. up something that's like Philly Fanatic light, yeah. it won't work. If we try to go too obscure the other way, it won't work. You have to acknowledge the fact that in the city of Philadelphia, with that mascot there, 
that it's almost this thought of like, well, that's what mascots look like. So a lot mm-hmm. of people have said it too. People is like, Gritty just looks like a cracked out Philly fanatic. <laughs> and it's kind of right. It's kind of true is you needed something. You're like we're that, almost ooh, there. Yeah. <laughs> but you needed something that, that matched that sort of like overpowering, like his name is the Philly fanatic. He embodies the fanaticism of like, so right. with gritty is okay. So he embodies the grittiness of the city, but it should be large. should be great. He should like the fanatic looks great in every photo he takes. Gritty should look the opposite. The eye should be in this direction, things like that. And we also went down to behavior. So we're as the Philly fanatic, will always say, you know, or try to find the positive spin and things like that. Gritty will kind of always go a little bit more extreme. So it was always of like, if every response was dialed up to 11, that's gritty. Whereas fanatic kind of works up to it. And the funniest part is with the fanatic is people forget, like he used to be all on Tommy Lasorda and things like that. Like fanatic didn't have an edge, but he did kind of get after it. He did push it. Mm -hmm. And we just, we want to take gritty that much further, but we knew everyone was going to hate him. We knew it. And we knew everyone in Philadelphia is going to hate him. And all we needed was for one person <laughs> to have the cojones to come at us. And if we nailed the response there, then we had it. And it was that Pittsburgh tweet. We can make fun right. of Philadelphians. Yeah. You can't. Yes. And that's what it was. And I don't want to take credit for that tweet response. Full credit to, a, I want to say it was uh, Lauren Robbins and Christina Mina uh, and a couple other people there. That was a perfectly crafted tweet with Bird in there and everything like that. But that was the hinge moment. But we knew. I, I knew it would work, but I also knew that there was going to be, hopefully, I thought it would be like a little over 24 hours. It was much less than that. But I thought it'd be 24 hours of everyone being like, what did we do? This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but this thing has exploded even further. So I think it was 2018, right? Early 2018 that Gritty was introduced. Yep, fall 2018 you, is when it came out. And you were the guy who walked him on stage, right? The first time at the introduction. Is that right? Yeah, so at the introduction, like I said, the night before we went, we rehearsed it, we blocked it out. I, I worked with Gritty on he, Gritty was concerned about how he should walk and how he should kind of act and things like that. We blocked it all out. We wrote this great bit. They had this this really goofy backstory prior, which thankfully got lost in the whole uh, explosion. <laughs> but uh, but what it came down is that we I ran behind the stage. Gritty and I we hopped in this thing called the Ultimate Souvenir Vehicle, which was uh, like a lawn cart with a big T-shirt Gatling gun on the back. <laughs> <laughs> and I drove him in. He comes through the smoke. He appears on stage, and we introduce it. And Dave Raymond said this, and he's right on. It was doing an unveiling in front of a bunch of kids of something that looked like that. <laughs> we, the kids were all on their feet. They were cheering. They were they loved it because we built it up in such a sort of way. And that yeah. was another indication to me, like, hey, this is going to work. We just got to get through this period where everyone hates on Philly, but that happens all the time. <laughs> You're like, this is like Tuesday from Philadelphia. Yeah. I, I, have a, I have a great picture standing next to Gritty on stage. And one, you see a lot of the similarities of build and personality per se. And then uh, the other part of it is you just see that like pure excitement in my face, at least, because Gritty has his back turned of like, yep, like this was exactly where I was supposed to be. I'm so glad I was a part of it. I'm so glad I had an impactful part on it because it was going to be something that no matter how old I get, it's a story I'll be able to tell, even if... Like I said, uh, uh, I don't get the magazines. I don't get a lot of the other stuff. I'm kind of under the radar in that sense. But I know where my true impact is on that. Well, I wanted to give you credit for it. I mean, look, like there are very few iconic mascots in sports, right? Philly Fanatic is one. San Diego Chicken is another. Maybe UP up from the Expos back in the day. I think he's with the Canadians now. But like yep. how many mascots are known as well as the Flyers mascot? And then it's taken off even further than that. So like now Gritty was like this thing that everybody hated then this thing that everybody loved then it was a meme 
Now it's an avatar for leftist political leanings. Like, it's just all over the map. But this is like exploded, I'm sure, beyond anything you could have imagined. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely more so than that. Uh, smart play that I want to say, uh, and it might be intriguing to the, the the legal community out there, was there was the discussion, and I wasn't fully involved in this, but I, I know where I kind of ranked to give my input of, all right, when people start using the image of Gritty, how much should we crack down, right? Yeah. Because right. he could end up in, in real situations. And mm-hmm. kind of laissez-faire with that because it made it that much more of a thing. Gritty became right. the mascot of the people. Gritty represents the Philadelphia Flyers, but I guarantee there's a whole segment of the community that knows Gritty and has no idea a single rule of ice hockey. Yep. Um, yep. And and part of that was is that you know we wanted, when you looked at him uh, amongst all other mascots, that you'd be able to tell who Gritty is, but we also wanted, when you thought of a mascot, just like we in Philadelphia, when we think of a mascot, we think of the Philly Fanatic. We want people around the world when they think of a mascot to think of something like Gritty. And I'm surprised we haven't seen more gritty knockoffs, you know, and things yeah, like I'm that. Yeah, I'm actually like surprised I, too. Yeah. Yeah, but but part of it is because that's, and I I know what this is going to sound like, but it is true. I'm sorry, everybody. But like, it's because it's really a Philadelphia thing. Like to celebrate something that's kind of like its own unique sort of deal, its own little brand of weird. Like I know Portland's weird. I know there's plenty of other cities <laughs> that have their weird identities. But Philly just has this real authentic, like you can only really explain it by being like, that's that. And that was a, a spirit we tried to capture. Uh, and that was something that we tried to do. And I can say at least in from the debut through that first season, Gritty lived up to that. He's like a hairy orange Rocky, right? <laughs> or something uh, like that. You know what? It's 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 funny about the Rocky comparison because it's, we want it gritty. Uh, Joe Heller, who is the, one of the heads of marketing at that point, said he's like, "We want you where you want to take a picture with gritty, but I don't know if you want to hug him." <laughs> you know, and that's that was the mentality. But it was one of those things, like you know, when we had like I had gritty immediately, like shooting t-shirts at the crew, like taking the t-shirt gun, shooting it at us. Uh, I had him, you know, throwing stuff around. I had him slipping on ice, like all these sort of things. Like, you know, the slipping on ice thing is such a great thing is because it was such an organic moment and the, the way we kind of played it. But there's the old thing of, uh, you know, in Philadelphia, the um, the snowballs at Santa Claus. It's such a right. like a tired, right. terrible trope. But the real story of that was the Eagles were trying to send out a Santa Claus. They couldn't find one. And they literally pulled a drunk guy from the stands. They put him out there. And it was a cheap organization <laughs> at the time, a cheap owner. Right. And so it had nothing to do that it was Santa. It had everything to do that it was a drunk guy in a... Right. You know, right. a crappy Santa. And so that's what we wanted. When Gritty kind of came out a little bit of that was like, have it be like, I can't tell this is the best idea or the worst idea, but they're just going for it. And that's what people <laughs> align with at Philly. Like you can't insult Philadelphians. You really can't do it because we take insults as compliments or we take it as an invitation to fight, which is the ultimate compliment. <laughs> I love it. I love how you went with sketchy as your mascot avatar, Sean. Thank you for spending so much time on this. I could talk more about this, but I think we're going to cut it off. (laughs) And people can find out more about Gritty by doing Google search and checking out all these memes. Thanks, all of you out there, for listening. This has been another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast, especially everybody in Banks, Texas. I know you're out there. Our Spotify playlist for this week's show covers some of my favorite tunes from cult music. Well, not real cult music, just songs from albums that were poorly reviewed when they came out, but which have undergone a critical rehabilitation. So listen up. It'll be a fun one. Our guest today has been Sean Hill of Nice Job. For more information about Nice Job, go to nicejob.com for reputation management. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for the Harlem Globetrotters live demonstration. So and I have to go tell Metterlock Lemon to go home. That's not going to be fun. Now that'll do it for another episode of the Legal Toolkit Podcast, where my milkshake is better than yours. (laughs) 